Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. I must start today with a correction. On last week's show, I misidentified the biopharmaceutical company Sellers as Stellas. There is no T in the name. Today, we look at what appears to be the sorry state of nuclear power and where it fits in the Biden administration's huge push for carbon emissions reduction in the electric sector. 12 nuclear plants have been closed across the country and more are on the chopping block. Is this any way to reduce carbon emissions? After all, from a carbon point of view, nuclear is the greenest of electricity up there with hydropower. To examine the issue and comment on the commitment of the administration, we have three policy aficionados. They are a certifiable environmentalist, my friend, Brian Keane, president of Smart Power, someone who describes herself as a policy wonk, Lindsay Walter, deputy director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Third Way, and John Kotek, a former assistant secretary for nuclear energy in the Department of Energy, and now the vice president for policy at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Let's begin with John. Is it as bleak as I said? So I think what we're seeing today, both in Washington, D.C. and in the States, is a growing recognition of the important role that nuclear energy plays today and can play in the future in getting to an affordable, reliable, decarbonized grid. We've seen states take action over the last several years to step up and preserve existing generation. Certainly not all, uh, but, but many plants have been uh, supported by state action. We're now seeing federal support for existing nuclear uh, being considered. And importantly, just this past week, the Biden administration issued a budget proposal that includes both support for existing plants and uh, an accelerated investment in bringing new technologies to market. So while uh, it's a critical time in ensuring we don't lose any more plants, I think the stage is being set for a bright future for, for the technology. But we have lost a great deal of green generation, haven't we? We have, we have indeed, to your, to your point, we've lost a dozen reactors. There are four more that we, we may lose this fall uh, in the state of Illinois, absent some action either by the state or by the federal government. Just for your readers or for your viewers' perspective, um, you know, just two of those reactors at the Byron plant in the state of Illinois, they produce more carbon-free megawatt hours per year than all 7,200 wind turbines in the state of California. It's an enormous amount of clean electricity that could be lost if, if those plants are allowed to shut down, and uh, we're, we're very hopeful that won't happen. Lindsay, how do you see the situation? Well, I think that John's assessment is fairly accurate. You know, we definitely need to be concerned about losing our existing nuclear fleet, and there are four reactors that we could potentially lose this year. But on the bright side, Congress is actively considering proposals that could keep our existing nuclear power plants online um, and several different ideas about how we might go about that. So I have some optimism that the community realizes how important it is to preserve what is left of our existing nuclear fleet. And there are some efforts underway to do exactly that. 
And I think the second half of this topic is the advanced nuclear, so the new nuclear reactors. And on that front, there's been very exciting progress in the past, you know, even five years. And hopefully we'll see multiple designs commercialized by 2030. So there's a lot of excitement in the nuclear community, but I, I think it's fair to have some concern about what happens to our existing nuclear fleet, our largest source of carbon-free power. But I find reasons for optimism on both fronts. Uh, take a moment, Lindsay, to tell us what the third way is. What third way is? So Third Way is a think tank. We are based in Washington, D.C., and we are a center-left organization. So I'm a member of our climate and energy program. I'm the deputy director of our program. And we prioritize policies to put the United States on the fastest, fairest path to net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. And we embrace using any and all technologies that can help us meet those climate goals. So Third Way is a, a think tank based in D.C. that's center-left. Brian, uh, nice to see you again. You are, Thank in you. fact, the enemy of nuclear, right? Because you <laughs> have been so successful in deploying rooftop solar that you have brought down the cost per kilowatt hour to a point where nuclear is not competitive. So uh, are you going to fall on your sword in front of us? <laughs> Well, thank you for the introduction. Uh, so I'd say it like this, which is that actually what we all need in this country today is what nuclear, is what wind, is what solar provides, which is carbon-free energy. Um, and let me just back it up a bit, which is you have correctly identified the fact that I have a lifelong struggle with nuclear power. Um, and in fact, when I was in fourth grade, I actually went and protested at the Seabrook nuclear power plant. But if you agree, which I do, that climate change is the number one uh, crisis facing the planet, you can't discount nuclear power. That in fact, you have a power that produces not only just power, but carbon-free power for so many of us. Um, so we have to rely upon it now as, and as always, as a carbon-free source. And Gina McCarthy even says that now, that it is a clean, free power, or a clean energy source. The challenge we have is that in the next 10 years, the United States is actually slated to close 80 nuclear power plants, 80 of them. And I'm the first one to say like, we cannot replace that power with coal. We cannot replace that power with wind and solar. We just can't make enough of it. And by the way, when you close a nuclear power plant, you decimate that community. You decimate the, the education systems. You actually decimate the pizza parlors in those communities. I mean, everything just, it's a domino effect. And no one is really screaming about this. It's unbelievable. When we close a nuclear power plant, everything, the dominoes just fall and fall and fall. And so what's happened actually is, by the way, it's not solar that's putting the nuclear power plants out of business. It's actually the natural gas plants that are putting them out of business. So what we, and, and those aren't carbon-free natural power plants. And I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but what I should say is what we have is an opportunity to take the carbon-free energies and work to, together to actually uh, meet the carbon challenges and the climate challenges of the future. Um, John, tell us how wide is this, what the real estate people call the gulf, the difference between the cost of, at the bus bar of uh, solar coming, say, of solar power, particularly, and nuclear power, or of, uh, as Brian says, of natural gas power. Yeah, well, what is the what is this difference and how egregious is it? So, so great question. Uh, 
to spe specifically answer your question, the state policies that have been enacted that have uh, preserved nuclear power generation have provided somewhere between 10 and 17 cents a, a, a megawatt or dollars a megawatt hour. So one to 1.7 cents a kilowatt hour to preserve that generation. It's not a big lift. For example, you know, the, the federal tax credits for wind and, and solar are, are valued higher than that. Um, so it's not a lot of investment that's required, you know, on a per unit of energy basis to preserve that generation. One thing I, I will point out about, about Brian's comments, and, and I agree with, with uh, just about everything he said, that 80, that 80 plant shutdown number is a little, that, that's an extreme uh, sort of version of the, of the picture. What we're seeing now is that as more and more utilities make commitments to decarbonize by mid-century or sooner, they're coming to realize that the nuclear plants they have are, are actually the cheapest way to keep carbon off the grid. So they're committing to what we call in the business subsequent license renewal, which is just extending the operating license of the plant another 20 years. We've already seen six reactors achieve approval to do that. Our internal surveys show that more than half of the reactors in uh, of the 93 we currently operate in the US are expected to apply by the end of this decade because again, the utilities see that our existing nuclear plants really are this core baseload firm around the clock carbon-free generation that we're gonna need alongside growing shares of wind, solar, and storage if we're gonna get to a clean energy future. Thank you. Lindsay, uh, isn't there an asymmetry here in which we look at the current cost of power coming out of a gas turbine or one of, uh, one of uh, Brian's uh, solar installations or from a windmill uh, against the cost of nuclear power. And as John has uh, pointed out, it's not a huge difference, but it's enough difference in the market today for the design life of, a, of one of John, uh, well, one of Brian's uh, solar panels is probably what, 25 years, uh, uh, Brian? Uh, 25 years, the design life of a nuclear power plant with renewals now is looking like 80 years. Uh, how can you say that this is uneconomic when one machine will last for 80 years, the other one will be kaput and have to be replaced after just a few years? Uh, how, do we, how do we deal with that kind of problem of pricing and what amounts to a pure energy market? which is only the market of today, it's not the long-term market. Right, and part of the problem is that we are pricing generation resources, only taking into account a certain quality of that resource. So we're not putting additional lower cost estimates on nuclear because it's a firm dispatchable resource that can provide additional reliability to the grid. So we are not costing it, taking into consideration the other attributes of the technology. Um, so certainly, there's been discussions for decades now on whether or not we should be changing what we ultimately use to, to cost out different electricity resources um, that would make a difference. I can see John wanting to jump in there, but before he does, the, another point that I, I would like to make is when we talk about cost, it's both the competitiveness of the existing nuclear fleet and also for the advanced reactors, they are playing in different parts of the energy market. So they're not always competing in the power sector potentially, right? They might be competing in the industrial sector where it can be much more cost competitive depending on what other zero carbon technologies it's competing against. So it also 
changes depending on what sector you're using the resource in. Right now we're kind of focused on power sector, so it does have to compete with super cheap natural gas, um, but some consideration for the advanced fleet as well. And Luan, if I can just jump in for a minute. When I talk about the, John, when I talked about the ADI plants shutting down, interestingly, fascinating, I'm not talking about just licensing. licensing. I'm talking about what happens when the utilities or the, the owners, the owner operators of those plants realize that they're, they're not making money. They shut them down literally overnight. Um, so it isn't about licensing. We can and should extend the lives of these uh, plants. Um, what happens is when the operators say, hey, we're losing a half a penny per kilowatt hour, shut it down. And, and what the tragedy is they shut them down literally overnight. So there's no warning for the communities. There's no warning that the tax base is going away and the communities are devastated. Um, and that's just one of those other problems. So, you know, you, you, we have a, a lack of the communities devastated, the tax base is gone. You have an energy problem that isn't re replaced. Um, and then we have the climate problem. Yeah, I, I'd like to go back to, oh, come, come on in, John. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, the, the, the thing that we're seeing now, though, is, you know, companies like Duke, all right, committed to decarbonize by mid-century, all 11 reactors that they run, they have announced that they plan to pursue subsequent license renewal, Dominion the same way. It's the, the, the companies that are operating in the regulated markets in the states where they can take a longer term view and value that zero carbon firm generation, those plants are in good shape. When you're in the competitive markets, to Lindsay's point, that only value the low cost, they don't value the resilience, they don't value the firm attribute, that's where the plants have been challenged. I'm hoping that as we try to decarbonize not just the electric sector, but the broader energy economy, that we're going we're gonna to be forced to place more of a value on those other attributes. So Sorry, this was another unintended consequence of deregulation. Yeah, it's it's certainly certainly the market as designed right now is not designed to really solve for the equation that we want it to solve for or solve for the problem we want to solve for now, which is both low cost electricity and resilience, reliability and low carbon. We're just solving for pricing. Lindsay, uh, you said you had the temerity to say that you were a left of center organization and uh, one of the problems historically with nuclear has been that the left wing of the Democratic Party or the left in general has taken it as an act of their uh, political catechism or an item on their political hit list that nuclear was bad. I sat through many meetings where environmentalists and others uh, advocated coal over nuclear. Coal was going to be the solution not to build that bad nuclear. So it takes quite a lot of uh, uh, moral courage, really, to reverse that. But there's a big residue of doubt about nuclear on the left, on the left of the political spectrum. How do you deal with that? Well, I, like Brian, was a skeptic and anti-nuclear for a large portion of my life. Um, I lived in Germany for some time, and there's a lot of anti-nuclear sentiment there. And I have transitioned to be supportive of nuclear because of the climate case for nuclear. I really think it's overwhelming. Um, and when you look at what the science is telling us on what it's going to take to meet our climate goals and what types of resources we need in order to get there, that was what shifted my opinion. You know, I still think that there's work that needs to be done in order to continue to build the coalition of support around nuclear. 
But I think there's a lot of others, especially other Democrats like myself, that have made this transition because of the climate case. Well, and I'd add to that, which is, you know, uh, circumstances have changed. Um, and, and one is clearly that climate has taken control and taken, taken over the issues. And so climate is the number one challenge. The second, though, is, you know, the nuclear industry for decades has driven this point that, you know, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. So when you get in an airplane and they say, hey, fly our airplane, it's safe. The first thing you think is, I'm going to get in a different airplane. And so we have to change, the nuclear industry has to change their messaging. Well, Brian, to your point about, about messaging, re really the message that's resonating the most with uh, folks right now is, the role that nuclear can play alongside wind, solar, and storage to get to an affordable, reliable, decarbonized grid. The, the other message that, that um, is really impactful, particularly with this administration, is about jobs. You know, the nuclear sector far and away is the highest paying uh, you know, part of the uh, energy sector. And given this administration's focus, not just on carbon and climate, but also on creating long-term well-paying jobs, uh, nuclear is resonating uh, very well with, with the folks in the White House. Exactly right. Well, and we see this, you know, in Arizona, Arizona Public Service is actually rebranding uh, uh, Palo Verde. They're actually really saying, you know, look, uh, we need this nuclear power plant. If we're going to be carbon free by 2050, we need the nuclear power plant to be a key piece of this puzzle, plus solar, plus storage, plus, by the way, technology we don't even know exists yet, but we're going to get there. And when you have, by the way, Arizona Public Service, which, by the way, had owned, has owned the largest, uh, oldest uh, coal-fired power plants, to then say they're going to be carbon-free, that's a game changer. Um, and when, when they said they were going to do that, then their utility commission said, oh, and so is every other utility in the state. And it's like, it changes the whole dynamic. Communities that have nuclear power plants in their vicinity are overwhelmingly supportive of nuclear. So you you even see around existing nuclear power plants today, surrounding communities are very supportive, don't share a lot of those concerns that others might have, and uh, recognize the benefits of the good, well-paying union jobs that come along with it as well, to John's point. And where do we go from now? What do we do to sell nuclear to the uncommitted? It still isn't the world's most popular idea for the future of electricity. And in fact, the country that really had it, you know, down pat, France, backed off to some extent. The opportunity, I think, Llewellyn, is, is as, as John has said, to get solar, wind, and nuclear to unite together to create the carbon-free energies of the future and of today. Um, and that is how we're going to get there. because. What we have in the United States is not just a climate challenge, but an energy challenge. We need the power. And when we talk about, by the way, not just the power for our buildings and our homes, but for our cars, right? So we're gonna be taking more power off the grid every day, every year, like to drive. So where is this gonna come from? Now, what the, the last place we want it to come from today is from coal, because that is, the, that is simply gonna add more to our climate crisis. So I, I would like to point so, out that there is a, uh, a, a vulnerability, particularly with wind, because the very large amount of rare earths used in wind turbines, which are all at the moment coming from China, which well, gives us a vulnerability that's not very appealing. Absolutely. And, and by the way, there's, um, make no mistake, every energy source has a footprint, 
right? So it's solar has a footprint, wind has a footprint. If we could make a pristine engine, it would have a footprint. Um, so everything has a footprint, but what we have now and what before us is a climate crisis and we need to create energy because by the way, we still all need to live and we have creature comforts that we do need in order to live. So we need energy to provide that. And it, that energy needs to be low to zero carbon in order to meet our, our needs, in order to meet the, the climate numbers. That is nuclear, that is solar, that is wind, and potentially other sources. But the game changes we have are solar plus storage, wind, and nuclear. And if we don't unite and use those, we're only, we're only hurting ourselves. And, and just to, to drill down a little bit deeper on that point, I think you know, Brian's exactly right. Just your, your viewers should remember, less than 30% of the emissions from the energy sector in the US come from the grid, come from producing electricity. We talk about decarbonization, we tend to focus on the grid in large part because that's the easiest part to, to, to handle. How are we gonna decarbonize heavy transport, day-to-day you know, -day personal transport, parts of the industrial sector. I mean, there are huge issues, but also opportunities that exist out there for the full range of carbon-free technologies. Nuclear has an advantage in some respects because you can, for example, produce high temperature process heat that's harder to produce with, with other clean technologies. So I think we're gonna find you know, room for a big growth in all of the clean energy technologies. Last week, for example, the International Energy Agency put out uh, a scenario of what it would look like to get to zero by 2050, you know, huge growth in, in other sectors. But even nuclear has to double under that very optimistic scenario for other energy technologies. People should, when we look at our situation here in the U.S., you know, we've been supporting, uh, you know, things like wind and solar back into the, since the 90s. In 1995, we were 84% fossil fuels in the US for total energy use. Last year, it was still 79%. At that rate, it's gonna take us 400 years to decarbonize. We gotta stop pretending we're on the right road and just need to step on the gas. We need to get out of the car and hop on a rocket, all right? And that means we're gonna need every source of clean energy we can get, wind, solar, nuclear storage, and the others. A nuclear rocket, I. Presume. I'm agnostic as to the <laughs> propellant for the rocket, but we'll take it. <laughs> I'd like to add two points, if that's all right. Um, to, to John's point about the need for the technology. So I've been leading a research initiative, a joint uh, project with Third Way, the Bipartisan Policy Center and Cleaner Task Force. And it's called the Decarb America Research Initiative. And we've been looking at different pathways for the United States specifically to get to net zero emissions. And so that includes looking at what are the technologies that we need and what are the policies that we need? And in these scenarios, you need nuclear in every single scenario. And it becomes so much more difficult, mainly in cost and also having to build out clean electricity at the rate we have to build it. You know, if we lose our existing nuclear fleet, we're already talking about having to build out wind and solar at 50% the rate or at twice the rate we've ever achieved historically. And we have to double it in the next decade and then again in the following decade. So we already have a huge infrastructure challenge and the loss of existing nuclear only makes that an even more difficult challenge. The second point I wanted to make Llewellyn to your question of, of where we go from here and kind of what's next 
is I'm always harping on the importance of connecting nuclear to the climate side of things, but it's also worth talking about the national security, international competitiveness angle as well. Because the reality is that there is a demand for these technologies in other countries around the world. And right now that demand is being met by China and by Russia. So there's also a question of whether or not the United States wants to capitalize on this opportunity to be a leader in a exciting new zero carbon technology that we can export to other countries and give them more options than what is currently being offered in order to get an advanced reactor. And especially as electricity demand doubles across the world, as developing countries begin to industrialize, it is an option to provide them with advanced nuclear reactor technologies. Um, and so that's another big angle where we see a lot of good reasons for support for nuclear, even outside of just the climate argument. John, as, as surely as the sun rose this morning, I will get a flood of emails when this program airs saying, what about waste? It's contaminating the earth, etc." cetera. Uh, how are you answering that? So well, let me get to that in just a sec. I want to put in a little plug for some work that Lindsay and her colleagues have done on advanced nuclear. There are dozens of companies in the U.S. right now who have identified the important role that firm carbon-free generation like nuclear can play. They're investing in bringing these new technologies to market. Really exciting times. I'm not sure how aware folks are of all of the exciting innovation going on and all the investment going into advanced nuclear. The subject of waste I deserves a little context. My own work, I have John. <laughs> the subject of waste deserves a little context, right? So as your viewers may know, spent fuel is a hard ceramic contained inside bundles of metal tubes. After spending about five years powering a reactor, the bundles are removed and they're stored for the long term inside steel and concrete containers at storage facilities. We've done it safely for decades and we can do it safely for decades more, but a final solution is long overdue. About 40 years ago, Congress passed a law saying that the government would build a disposal facility for both government and commercial spent fuel if the commercial sector would pay its share. So Congress selected something called the Yucca Mountain site in Nevada as the only site to be studied to host the facility. Nevada objected, the Obama administration pulled the plug. And since then, Congress and successive administrations have been un unable to agree on a path forward. So today there's more than $40 billion from those private sector payments I mentioned. They sit in a fund ready to be spent if DOE and Congress can agree on a path forward. Now I was in charge of this program uh, in the last two years of the Obama administration and, and we tried to resume a site selection process that aimed to achieve consent from the host state and local and tribal governments. That sort of approach has worked in places like Finland, where they're building a repository, and other countries like Sweden, Canada, France, as well. I'm encouraged that the Biden administration seems serious about tackling the issue and plans to resume a process, uh, and we're eager to help. But, but in the meantime, we're going to keep safely storing the fuel in multi-layered protected facilities at the reactor sites. Uh, well, John Kotek, Lindsay Walter. And Brian Keane, thank you so much for coming on the show today. That is our program for today. Uh, time for us to prepare for summer and to relax. And uh, by the way, the pandemic's not over. Put this on and go to the beach. Summer is here. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, 
is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.